Father, we trust your word. We trust you. And we pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us for the exaltation of Jesus, for our holiness in Christ, and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I think this is an interesting text because we... So, I've been thinking about this for about the last 12 hours, since last night and this morning. We have been in 1 Corinthians for over three years. We started in, on February 18th, 2018. And we're almost done with it. And in three years, if you think about the life of a church, three years is a long time. A lot of things can happen in three years in a church's life. And I would be willing to say that a lot of things have happened in our church in three years. A lot of changes and a lot of uh, adjustments and a lot of blessings and growth and grace and good things. Um, some hard things as well. And I, I think as we've gone through 1 Corinthians... Um, God has essentially put us through the very things that we're preaching, right? So like as, as we go through a text, God literally like has us experience that text. So like for example, in chapter 5, there's this text on church discipline and then we have church discipline issues and then in chapter 7 it's about uh, you know uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage and we've got marriage, divorce, remarriage situations in the church and then in chapter 11 it's about male and female roles and we've got male and female role situations and then communion and then and just and then chapters 8 through 10 are a lot about Christian freedom and then we go through a lot of experiences where Christian freedom needs to be understood and applied and, and just as we've gone through it God has literally like, I'm not even quite sure what perspective to take. You know, it's like, it's, is it the chicken or the egg that comes first kind of question? Are we going through those things because they're being preached? Or has God put us through those things and then have us address them in the text with a solution? Either way, God, like we just sang, is still in control. And so three years in one book, and as we go through it, we endure the book itself, not just in the preaching, but in our church life. And so then you get to the end of 1 Corinthians. You get to chapter 16. And we've got this idea or this command to love. And it's like after all the hardship, and I think just the application for us, for us as a church is we look at 1 Corinthians and we think... That, that's a bad church. Like, we're not like them. And I think in a lot of ways we are in the sense that we needed the same, uh, we needed the same uh, exhortations, the same encouragements, the same commands, the same corrections that the Corinthians were needing, I think to a different degree. But now this letter ends with just, after all that harshness, and I think three years of change and growth and development as a church to be where we are today and then to just have this kind of end to the chapter because after verse 14 there's still three more commands that come at the rest of this chapter and the final word of this entire chapter is love so 
for God to kind of wrap up three years of church life and us having to go through all the things we went through and to him just finally say, you know what? I love you. And love each other. It's just such like a pleasant rest from all of the hardship and, and the hard things. Because, you know, good things are often take hard work, right? Anything worth doing or anything worth, how's that go? Anything, you get it. <laughs> I hope you get it. I don't know if I even get it. Anyways, this idea of love, just to, to end this chapter with love, is just such a satisfaction to me to think, you know, through it all, the, the letter begins with Paul calling the Corinthians beloved, God calling us my loved children. And then harshness throughout the letter. Three years. And then to end it with, but don't forget that I love you. And then not only that, but take that love that I have for you and give it to others. If you've spent any time in church or any time around church or around Christians, then you know that love is the greatest command and the most important command. Uh, Jesus said it's the greatest command is to love. Love God and love others. And we are warned about not loving. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, it tells us that if you love others, you're in the light. If you don't love others, you're in the darkness. There's a very stark line that John draws throughout the whole book of uh, 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. That is a huge statement. If you don't love other people, you don't love God and you don't know God, that's, 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 a, that's not a thin line. That's a thick line. That's a clear distinction. Verse 1 John 4, 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So there's, the Bible's filled with the command to love. It's the most important thing that we can do as Christians. All of, everything else in life, theology, doctrine, activities, entertainments, church itself, all that stuff, your spiritual gifts, everything done, there's not love in it, it's worthless, it's pointless. It's damaging. It doesn't produce fruit. It's not good. It's not Christian. It's not godly. It's not righteous. So last week, I remember I had said, kind of like, as I was encouraging you to grow, I made the comment that there are a lot of times I hear people say, well, just God loves you. And to be honest, if that's your only theology, it's not enough. You've got to go deeper than that. But if you go deeper than that and leave and forget about love, then all that doctrine and all that theology and all that study and all that growth isn't actually growth. It's decay and it's decline. Love has to be the foundation of everything we do and the purpose and motivation of all the things that we do, loving God and loving others. If, I mean, so I often say to people, when they come to me and say, you know, what, I want to do this ministry, we should do that thing or this thing, and I, my first question is, how does that fit our vision? Does that suit our vision? It's our guiding principle, right? This vision we have as a church is our guiding principle. 
we need to ask ourselves questions to help us align ourselves with truth. So a good question to ask yourself in anything you do. I mean from getting a cup of coffee in the morning, to deciding what TV show to watch, to deciding what job you're going to take, to deciding whether you're going to move, or whether you're going to show up for church that morning or not, or whatever you're going to do. All the decisions in your life, every single little decision. Orange juice or milk, I don't know, needs to be filtered by this question. Is this an expression of loving God and loving others? Is this loving God and loving others? That should guide everything we do. And if that does guide us, that means it's on the front of our mind. And it means it's important to us. And what John tells us in 1 John is, if you love God, if you are a believer, it will be important to you. So, loving others is the most appropriate response to being loved by God because God is love. So, if love is so important, then the question is, how do we do it, right? Like, everyone in this room knows, yeah, love God, love others. That's not news, it's not novel, it's not something new. But the question is, like, how do I love? Like, give, you know, how do I put my hands on something real, an actual action or, or thing that, that I can do or a way that I can think? What does it look like? How is love applied to my Christian life and to my walk and my relationship with others? So those are questions we're going to answer this morning. We start in verse 14. And Paul gives the last command. So there's five commands in 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14. And we've done four of them, and this is the last one. And it's a culminative, a cumulative uh, command that encapsulates all other commands. Let all that you do be done in love. So think about it like this. All that you do, meaning if you obey any other command... So right before this, we had four commands. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Those are things you are supposed to do. You're commanded to do. And then in verse 14, let all that you do, well, that would include the commands that you're doing. So even the commands we've already addressed in every command in Scripture has to be fulfilled, isn't fulfilled, isn't satisfied and isn't complete unless it is done in love because all that you do has to be done in love so when i tell my children to do the dishes and they're like oh you know uh, so gross you know they don't want to like touch the rag and stuff right and i i tell them i just told one of them this week i said you know your obedience is not obedience if you're not doing it in joy. <laughs> and, uh, you, and, I, and I went up to him and I said, let me explain that to you. When you do this act of obedience in joy, it brings pleasure to your father's heart. It makes me happy. It pleases me. And as I am pleased, I want nothing more than to bless you for for pleasing me, for doing not just what I ask, but doing it because you love me and because it brings you joy to make me happy. And then I, the one who has the checkbook and all the money, will pour tons of blessings on you. Right? And he's like, fine. <laughs> like, we'll work on it. <laughs> the point is that just like with 
obedience isn't complete without joy, so obedience is not complete without love. If you do an action that God commands you to do and there is no love motivating that action, that is sin. Sin. You can do what God commands you to do in sin, and it's not obedience if it does not have love. That is a reality that I think we need to really think about because we get so enamored by this idea of just doing what God tells us to do. Like if I just stop doing this thing, then I'm good with God. Or if I start doing this, then I'm better. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is love. All those activities, all those commands need to be fulfilled, aren't fulfilled until we do them with love, love for God and love for others. So the way in which the word love is used in 1 Corinthians is always a product of God's love for us, him loving into us, and then him manifesting that love out of us and into others. And so the application of doing everything in love is essentially the same as Jesus' command to us, love God and love others. Always love God and always love others. That's really what this command means. But to be honest, isn't that rather vague? Just love all the time. That's the command. Always love everybody. Always love God. Always love others. It's so general. It's like, how do I put my hands on that? Like, how do I make that tangible? How do we love others? In what ways or in what situations? Well, the answer is in all situations and in all ways. But still, that's still kind of vague and general. So that doesn't really give us like a button to push or something practical for application. So we look back at the rest of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we see how he applies love. Apart from chapter 13, because chapter 13 is it's like it's, it's, it's called like the love chapter, right? And we'll get to that in a minute. But apart from chapter 13, love is only mentioned a couple times in this entire letter. And each time it is for the Corinthians to recognize that the love they have inside of them is from God. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. And that love is for others. It's from God and for others. That is the meaning and purpose of love. From God and for others. The way in which we are to love others comes from God's love for us. His love for us is the underlying and foundational truth about doing all things in love. And that is... That is not just like this humanly manufactured love. This is God's love for us that he gives us in Christ and then matures and grows in us. And then the Holy Spirit, as he fills us, manifests himself out of us and into others. That is the foundation. That is the foundational truth to loving others. And that is the truth that your action of love stands on. So to love others... This is why I say all that. To love other people or to do actions that in your mind are loving other people is not loving them if it does not come from God's love for you. Do you see that? Like you can manufacture something that looks like love to other people. Right? Let's say you're walking down the hallway and someone drops a pile of books and you run over and you pick them up and go, here you go. I want to, just wanted to help you and serve you. And they'd be like, oh, that's, that's a loving action. That's loving them. But if that action isn't motivated by God loves me and I want to express his love to others, then it's not love. Now, 
Does that mean that we consciously have to think about that and say that to ourselves before we perform any action in order for it to be right? Like, hold on, I want to pick up your books, but hold on. Okay, God, you love me. All right, okay, I'm ready to go. And then you, <laughs> then you go help them, right? Like, the, the point isn't to just consciously always be thinking about it, but that you are so engaged with God that his love just permeates everything, your mind, your heart, your thoughts, your actions. Like, Jesus didn't have to stop and think, hold on, God, I can't act until, you love, until I love you enough. Jesus spent so much time with God, with his Father, he was just constantly falling deeper in love with him, always engaged with him. So then the actions he did, he didn't have to stop and think, wait, is this loving God? He didn't have to think that way. He wanted to do them because he loves God. So, I think what we need to discover now is more specifically some application, like how that love is to be applied to others. So we look at how Paul expresses this idea of Christian love in this letter to the Corinthians. And there are three texts. Um, there are actually, there's three texts. We're going to use two of them. And then one of them is chapter 13. So three ways that Paul applies this command of doing everything in love. So three ways to love us. I'm Honestly, I do not think of myself, nor, nor do I try to do this. I'm not like a three-point sermon kind of preacher. It's just not my style. And I think over the last like month or so, as I address these texts, God's like, three points, three points, three points. I'm like, I guess I am. I don't know. I think God is a three-point sermon kind of preacher. Anyways, we got three points here, three ways to love others. Number one, discipline. It's from 1 Corinthians 4.21. Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He's not asking their opinion. It's a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. Paul's desire is to approach them with, a, with, uh, with love and a spirit of gentleness because the context is discipline, right? And whether it's the rod or gentleness, either way, it's discipline. This idea of discipline does not, you really need to hear this, okay? I think this is very important reality when it comes to how God treats us and deals with us and how we deal with others and parents, how you deal with your children. Discipline is not punishment. Those are not the same word, and they do not mean the same thing. Listen to this, 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Hebrews 12 tells us that God's discipline to us means he loves us as sons. If he doesn't discipline us, discipline us then, then we are illegitimate, not sons. That's what Hebrews 12 says. So to be disciplined by God is love. And then 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Listen to this. For fear has nothing to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So what we're being told here is that discipline is love. Punishment is not. So discipline is not punishment, 
okay? Discipline is a concept of practicing holiness. That's why you discipline your children, to help them practice holiness. For example, we call Bible reading and prayer godly disciplines. Why? Because they're, they're not punishment. They're training us for godliness. So discipline is not punishment. Discipline is training. When my children disobey, I discipline them. And I communicate to them that they are not being punished, but that their discipline is my responsibility to train them into holiness. Hebrews 12, 7 says that God's discipline is not punishment, but love. And in a parent-child relationship, that discipline training can sometimes feel to the child like punishment. Right, kids? Yeah, it does. But that can sometimes be, one, because they're children, or two, because sometimes parents don't lead that child in love. Through their discipline. I mean, think, I, I don't know how everyone is, but I would imagine most of us have had those moments where our kids have done something they shouldn't have, um, and it was bad enough, and it happened right in front of us, and it got us angry, and we reacted aggressively, or in anger, or out of annoyance, like, what's wrong with you? Right? What are you doing? Knock it off! That's not love. <laughs> That's anger. Parents ought to first, first. You know, it's funny because I just remembered last week. Didn't I say next week's sermon is on parenting? And because I was giving you the worst examples of my parenting ever. That's funny because now we're talking about parenting. I didn't even think about that. It was not intentional. Anyways, <laughs> parents first. And listen, adult parents, to some degree, this applies to how you treat your adult children. Did I say adult parents? Parents of adult children. This applies to how you treat your adult children. Obviously, the way you discipline your adult children is not the same as you discipline the children who are young and live at your home. But they're still disciplined. You're still responsible for them to some degree. Right? My dad still calls me. Called me two weeks ago. Mark, I need to talk to you. I was like, oh. <laughs> What I do, Dad? He goes, I was listening to your sermon, like, oh boy. <laughs> he said, You said something. And then he had talked to me about something I said, and he goes, He was right. It was, some, it was this little thing I was doing, I didn't realize I was doing. It, it was actually the way that I was kind of, uh, the way I was kind of portraying the Word of God and the way that I bring it out. And he saw it. And he felt a responsibility as a father to his son. And he's an elder at his church. He cares about the word in the church, of course. And he's like, that, essentially what you're doing, Mark, is you're giving a disclaimer for the word of God. It does not need one. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> That's why I need my dad. Did he punish me? No. He disciplined me. He trained me. He taught me. He saw a problem. He called me. He loved me. He spoke to me in a spirit of love, with love and a spirit of gentleness and corrected me. It was awesome. And I'm better for it, and you're better for it. So, this applies to adults, adult children as well, to parenting your adult children. The first thing we need to do as parents is calm down from our anger. 
and calm down from our annoyance. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes we discipline our kids because they're annoying us. That's not their fault that they're excited, right? We, get, we bought a car, and the car's small. We used to have a truck, like a big vehicle, and the kids could sit way in the back, and they weren't annoying, right? <laughs> we got a small car. They're right behind us, and we're on a long trip, and they're like, yeah, 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 and I'm like, shut up! And then I feel terrible because I'm so annoyed and I just yelled at my kids, not because they were misbehaving, they were just happily being kids, right? And, and, I, and then I have to turn around like, I'm sorry I yelled at you, I'm glad that you're happy, but this is a small vehicle, can you please keep it down? <laughs> so we got to calm down from the anger, calm down from the annoyance, and stop reacting emotionally to our children's sin, but instead approach them like Paul. It, with love and a spirit of gentleness so that love can flourish. Love will never flourish in anger. Anger is one of those emotions that completely consumes you and there's no other emotion to have when there's anger. It takes over. And there's no room for love. Then the parent needs to communicate clearly with your child about their sin and God's desire for your holiness. And, and you also need to communicate to your kids, child, it is my responsibility as your parent. God commands me to discipline you in this action. If I don't discipline you, then I'm disobeying God. That's how much he cares about your righteousness. Amen. And then we train them through that communication. That communication is not about the discipline. That communication is the discipline. It's training your children to understand what is happening to them and what God is, is, expects from us. Then, if there is additional discipline that is needed, such as like using the rod, that discipline needs explanation as well from the parent so that the child understands that they are not being punished, but rather that they are being loved. And then the last step, and most important step, I think, in discipline is to love on your child in a physical and emotional way. Hug them, hold them, comfort them, kiss them, pray with them, give them peace, show them what God shows us, assure them that they are never left alone to deal with the hardness of that discipline on their own. And it is vitally important that we have that kind of communication and peace and love in our communication or in our discipline because that is an expression of the gospel. Right? It's an expression of how God treats us. He doesn't just spank us and then leave us. He spanks us and then comforts us and shepherds us and loves on us and gives us peace. And he gives us his presence. When God disciplines us, he doesn't do it out of anger. He does it out of compassion and grace and love for us. You know when God's anger is sparked against those whom he does not know who commit sin and reject him. He doesn't he doesn't get angry at his children. He loves us. And if he has a righteous indignation against our sin, he loves on us through discipline. Because we are his children, he loves us and he knows what's best for us. So he disciplines us in his love for our own good. Hebrews 12, 10. For the moment, all discipline seems Painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this is not intended for pain. This is intended for righteousness, and righteousness stands on love. 
So we love our children through discipline by providing communication, peace, and the rod. All of which are different elements of love in this concept called discipline. It's the same way God deals with us parents. This is vitally important to your relationship with your kids and to their holiness because if you don't do it, they won't get the discipline and they won't be trained in righteousness and they need it just as much as you need it from God. And in their life, you are the actor who portrays the nature of God. You're the voice of God in their life. You are the actions of God in their life. You bring the word of God to their life. You show them God's love in their life. They need your discipline. Parents of adult children, they need it too. Differently, probably less often, right? But always with love in a spirit of gentleness. Without that, it's nothing. Number two. Number two way to love others. Encourage. Look at what 1 Corinthians 8, 1 says. Love builds up. Love will always build others up. Even if that love has to be expressed as... So when we think of building up, what, what's the first word that comes to your mind? For me, it's encouragement. You're going to build other people up, that's encouragement. But building up also comes in other ways. Correction and rebuke. Right? So 2 Timothy chapter 4 says the word of God is viable for correction, rebuke, and encouragement. So... Though encouragement is the way we tend to think of this idea of building up, building up also comes with correction and rebuke. So if we are correcting others, it is to be done in love. Meaning we are not correcting others so that we can elevate how much more we know than them or how much better we do what they're doing. We correct others in a spirit of gentleness that is rooted in our love for God that comes from God. And when we love God, we love others. So we show them how much we love them because God loves them. And 1 John chapter 3 says that as you love God, you love those whom God loves. So we can love people by correcting them. But again, in a spirit of, with love and spirit of gentleness. And, and, and we, want, we do that with a motivation to see them to see them walk righteously. Not to see us look great so that they can run around and tell people, oh, that person told me how they do this and that. They're so encouraging to me. Oh, they're such a good Christian. Like, there are totally sinful motivations in the way we try to love people. And we need to push those aside. And we need to rest in this reality that our desire, if we love God, then we do love others. And if we love others, our concern is their righteous walk with God so that they will enjoy God rather than being terrified of God every time they sin. If we come down harsh when we correct people, we pour shame on them. Shame makes them afraid and makes them hide from God and it creates legalism. Not good. It's the anti-gospel. Whereas if we come with love and a spirit of gentleness, we bring peace, we bring God's love, and we bring righteousness with us for them to grow with no shame. We encourage others as well as correcting them and rebuking them. We encourage them not for recognition or to be liked or to elevate our own spirituality in front of others. 
We need to be careful how much and how we actually encourage other people because too much encouragement toes the line of flattery. Right? Proverbs 26, 28 says, A flattering mouth works ruin. And flattery does not encourage other people. Flattery traps them. Proverbs 29, 5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Once had, once had a pastor who told me, um, he said there was this guy in our church who, at the time they were friends, but years later he discovered this guy wasn't his friend. This guy was trying to destroy this pastor. It didn't come out till later, but while they were quote-unquote friends, this guy would just always tell everybody how great this pastor was. He would raise him up and elevate him in front of everybody, in front of the pastor to other people. Even when the pastor wasn't there, he'd just tell her, oh, he's the greatest, great. Oh, he's so good. He does this. He just, and, and, and what this pastor told me was, I started to realize all this flattery is not good. What this guy was trying to do was raise up this pastor to make him fall. You, you make your pedestal high enough, you're going to die when you hit the ground. Right? And that's what he was trying to do. Set him up for failure. It was setting a, a net for his feet. Flattery doesn't do any good. And it's not encouragement. So what's the difference between flattery and encouragement? Action. That's the difference. Action. Talk is cheap. Right? Talk is cheap. So it means nothing to others only to encourage them with words. Now, we certainly encourage people with words, but to only use words is cheap. 1 John 3.18, let us not love in word or talk, but what? In deed. We must work to encourage others. We, we encourage others by praying for them. Now, those are words, but it's an action you're doing for them. By, we encourage them by telling them how we see God using them. We remind them of God's promises. We, we encourage them by bearing their burdens with them and for them. We encourage them by coming alongside them and strengthening them with the word of God and by listening to them and hearing what they're going through and helping them through it. When we do that for others, when our encouragement is not just words but it's accompanied by action, they feel loved. I am, my love language is words of affirmation. Okay, so the way I feel most loved is when my wife tells me all the great things about me. <laughs> so I'm like, she'll be like, oh, honey, you're so whatever. And I'm like, yeah, keep going, you know. <laughs> Why? Why do you feel that way about me? <laughs> I'm like, just keep talking, you know. Because I feel loved when my wife encourages me when she, said, when she uses words of affirmation. But you know what? Though my love language is words of affirmation, when I come home and like, the kitchen's clean and the house is vacuumed and everything's in order and the kids are happy and she like made dinner, you know, whatever. Stuff just like, I'm like, she's like, honey, I made your house nice for you. I'm like, that feels like love. Like that feels like she didn't just, because talk's cheap. Anyone can say, I love you, but it's hard to show it. Your love for others through your encouragement strengthens them, right? 
As God's love pours out of you and into them through your encouragement, they are strengthened. They're strengthened to continue. They're strengthened to fight the good fight and, they, and to live faithfully, to love God and others well, and to be full of joy and to glorify God. So one of the best ways to love people is to encourage them, not just in word, but in action. And number three way to encourage others. Serve. So 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's this whole chapter on love. But the context of the love is spiritual gifts. So it's a, it's a chapter on spiritual gifts. And the point is, your gifts without love are meaningless, right? So, so you've got, I mean, I, we could have done like, instead of three ways to love others, we could have done like 20, because listen to all the ways that love is expressed in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. That's a lot of points. That whole, con that whole, if we were to dissect it, which we did, we did dissect that probably a year ago or whatever. It took us about a month to get through this chapter, chapter 13. If we were to dissect that, what it would all culminate into is this one idea of serving. Your spiritual gifts are serving. That's their purpose, to serve others. Serving others is equivalent to using your spiritual gifts. When we serve others, we're using our gifts. When we use our gifts, we're serving others. And when we serve others by using our gifts, they must be used in love. Chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. To use your gifts out of any motivation at all that is not love makes your work and your service worthless, meaningless, and nothing. Spiritual gifts are not for your own trophy case. They're not for you to put on display to show people how spiritual you are. They're not something you tote around like, oh, I'm a prophet. Oh, I speak in tongues. I'm so spiritual. Spiritual gifts are meant for one thing. To serve others. And serving others without love is literally worthless. It literally means absolutely nothing at all. It is a total waste of everyone's time and energy. Spiritual gifts, they are a manifestation of the Spirit pouring God's love for you out of you and into others so that they do not just experience you but they experience God through you. What is best for others is not you. What is best for others is God. But God saw fit to give himself to them through you. So you are the means by which God manifests himself to others by the Holy Spirit manifesting himself out of you to others through your spiritual gifts. So, 
we must be spirit-filled so to be prepared to allow the spirit to manifest himself out of us and into other people. Not for our gain, but for their gain. And their gain will not happen in just you. They gain when they get God through you. You are simply the vehicle that God drives to his purpose in their life. You hear that? You are simply the vehicle that God drives to his purpose in their life. And if you want to be God's vehicle, you have to be motivated by loving others. And your love for others, it comes in these three ways, right? Discipline, encouragement, and serve. That will always be the product of God's love for you and your love for God. 1 John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Loving others is a product of God's love for us, and his love for us is expressed in us by our loving others. So, what if... I do not genuinely have a motivating love for others. What am I to do? Because I've experienced, I'm sure we all have, there are times when I have to do things for people that I don't want to do. And I don't, and, I, and I'm, I'm so selfish sometimes that I don't want to, to do this for them. And the reason I'm not motivated to do it for them is because I love me more than I love them. So how do I change my motivation to love them more than myself or anything else? The solution is to love God more. As your love for God grows, you will experience deeper affections for others and love will begin to flourish in you and then out of you as it fills you up. So... How do I grow my love for God then? If, if, the, if, the solution, if the answer to loving others better or more is to love God more, then how do I love God more? And this, it's this, the way you love God more is the same way you love anyone. Spend time with Him. Spend time with Him. The more time you spend with God, the more He will show you Himself. And if you are genuinely, truly a Christian, the revelation of God will always produce greater love and deeper affection for God. And as you love God more, you will grow to love what God loves more. Others. Let's pray. Father, we know that you love us. Help us to love you and help us to love others. It's, it's just one of those commands, God, that is just out there, and we see it all the time. It's really popular, and we repeat it. But I think we forget, Father, how important it is and how easy it is to pretend like we're doing it when we're really not. So adjust our motivations. Let all that we do be done in love. Transform our hearts and deepen our affections for you and grow our love and satisfaction in you so that as you fill us with your love, it just overflows out of our cup and into the lives of other people. We do this, we want to do this because 
I want to see, we want to see all your people loved and we want to see those who don't know you loved so that they would believe when they see your love. God, it's easy to pretend. I pray that you would make our hearts genuinely, deeply affectionate for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, 